Hello listeners, it's great to be back for series four. This time, I wanted to create something a bit different. So in 2021, I'm going to theme each series. And let me know if this is something you like or whether you prefer diverse, eclectic episodes. I'm also opening up series four with a competition. I'm offering the opportunity for two people anywhere in the world to win a copy of the Courage Journal. If I can post it to you, then you are in with a chance to win. What you need to do is simply leave a five-star review via Google or my Facebook page, Joyful Living with Sana Turnock, take a photo and then email it to hello at courageunraveled.com. You have until the 30th of April 2021 to respond. Winners will be announced and reviews read in series five. Woohoo! Now let's get focused on the Courage Unraveled author series. Sometimes you choose courage and at other times it's forced upon you. Courage Unraveled is a podcast series where you get to listen to insights, discussions, conversations and stories from people from all walks of life. You'll be served with dollops of courage, resilience and strength here. So come along and be educated and inspired. You just may find new ways to flex your own courage muscle. My name is Sana Turnock and I'm your host. Today I get to speak with Carly Israel. Now Carly loves her tattoos. The tattoos she has on her body represent things or phrases that are meaningful to her. One of these phrases is the North Star. This metaphor is what keeps Carly together when things get tough. You see, the North Star represents her sons. She will do anything for her boys. This is clear when you read her beautifully written and at times raw and heart-wrenching memoir, Seconds and Inches. You find out about Carly's drug and alcohol addiction and how she was only seconds and inches away from succeeding in a suicide attempt. You will also be astonished at how she rises from the flames, gets married, has three sons, gets divorced and then remarries. Carly finds herself travelling through hallways of loneliness and fear as she navigates walking through a fire a second and third time. Carly's experiences have set her in great stead for her work as a divorce coach, podcaster, writer and of course an author. Let's dive in. It's a real privilege to be able to share these inspiring podcasts of courage with you. The work undertaken takes many hours to put together and is self-funded. Become a Courage Unraveled patron on Patreon and not only will you be supporting the podcast, you will also be helping yourself by investing in your own courage. Get access to pre-release episodes and patron-only specials. It's easy being a patron and the first tiers are less than two coffees per month. Cultivate and flex your courage muscle by signing up for a one-to-one Grow Into My Courage program and grab your very own journal. You grow your courage muscle by activating it. Listen to the podcasts, grab yourself the Courage Journal, sign up to the Grow Into My Courage program and become a patron. After this episode, head over to courageunravel.com. It's all happening there. Grow into your courage today. Carly Israel, welcome to Courage Unraveled. I am so grateful to be here. Finally, I've been wanting to be on your show. I know. And look, I'm so excited. I was feeling the same way. So we've finally gotten to connect after many, many months. I have a lot of questions to ask, but this is a series on authors. So I'm going to have to streamline it a little bit. (laughs) So I would like to start off by talking about Seconds and Inches. That's the title of your book. And I wanted to say there is so much to this memoir. It's written through a combination of short chapters and complemented by letters to specific people. Why did you decide to write that? 
First of all, thank you for reading it. It's my soul baby on the pages. I didn't decide to write it. I had to write it. You know when you have to write? So I've wanted to write this story since I was nine. And nine-year-olds don't have a lot of space for memoirs in their life. And (laughs) as my life was unraveling, I knew that I needed to tell my story. And as it continued to unravel, I knew that. And as I learned the stories of my ancestors, I knew I always wanted to write this story, but then it was brought to me that it needed to be done. There's some very powerful moments in there. You write about your drug and alcohol addiction, having three sons, one of whom is legally blind and your younger son has a rare medical condition. That has had you and your son, Levi, spending countless hours in hospitals, medical and research centres and in emergency. That was pretty full on reading all of that. You and your new husband live in different states. I'm Jewish by you know birth and culturally, but I don't necessarily practice my religion, but I like to know that, you know, where I come from. I remember being at a service and on one of the prayer cards, I saw this prayer that asked God to not give me any challenges this coming year. And I stopped and I said, I won't say this prayer. And they asked me why. And I said, because my challenges give me more gifts than anything. And who am I to know what not to take? So I asked God to just be with me while I'm in the challenges. Wow, that's a very powerful statement. That is seriously courageous. <laughs> that it is, is true. I mean, you can't yeah. tell me you can't look at your own life and see that some of the biggest gifts you've gotten and the biggest lessons have been from the hardest times. Oh, I totally agree. But reading your book, would you not want some respite? I guess God thinks I can handle a lot, you know, but I can just reading through this and people you really need to read this story seconds and inches there is so much in it and it's true like you know some people they have a lot happen in their life and hence probably why you wanted to write this book you've had some very full very powerful experiences that I think have been really important to share with others I think to get people to understand what it's like really to live in your shoes going through what you're going through with Levi is that still going on I'll give a little preview for the listeners Levi was born with a potentially fatal medical condition that we didn't know about until he's around five months old. And we found out that he was born with a medical condition that no one's ever had ever in the world. So that's fun. Through a series of really painful trying times, we ended up in Boston where we were facing two potentially brain surgeries where he might not have survived. He still has that condition where his blood in his head is rerouted differently than ours. And because of seconds and inches literally in my belly, his body figured it out and he survived. And then if that wasn't fun enough, a couple months later, he started getting sick all the time. We found out that he has a fever condition, an auto-inflammatory condition, where he gets fevers over 107.5. I was told by medical professionals at the National Institute of Health, which is the biggest medical place in America, that his fevers are not consistent with life. And I'm like, yeah, I know. (laughs) It's pretty scary. I think what I want to really make it clear is I obviously would never want my child to suffer. But because we have this in our life, I am a better human and a better mother because we walk through this. Mm. What kind of people can you see them growing up into at this early stage? Such a great question. My three boys are my world. They're hysterical. We are inappropriate. We talk about everything under the sun, like everything, sexual, drugs, inappropriate things. We talk about racism. We talk about intolerance. And while we all have potty mouths in our house, because I really don't think language matters, and some people are really sticklers for that, I am completely against anyone being unkind to other humans. And 
we talk a lot about that kind of stuff. So there's never a time in our house where there's not penis drawings on the mirror from the bathroom shower. (laughs) And we're not, you know, being forced to watch a movie that mom is making us watch because she wants to talk about something in it. So they're going to grow up pretty aware young people and adults. My job is to raise good humans. And I come from a family who I love my family. They're awesome. But their their idea of success and my idea of success is kind of different. I personally think that what a successful person is, is someone who's a good human. And if you are a good human, you're going to be happy regardless of how much money is in your bank account. And they see mom hustling out there to like help other people. Like we saw someone today. It's really cold in Cleveland right now, hailing and snowy and we got a pandemic. And I saw this elderly person, you know, hobbling with a cane and she had a bag and it was so bad out. They saw me like almost break down because I knew we couldn't stop. It wouldn't be safe to let someone I don't know in the car and with the pandemic and, you know, just life. But they see and we talk about those things and how privileged we are. And I don't want them to ever misunderstand that the color of our skin is totally like a gift that they got for no reason. And that we live in a world where people, if my three boys look different, they would be endangered species. And we talk about that all the time. They're very lucky to have you in that sense. Thank you. Just going back to the book for a moment, has writing the memoir been a cathartic experience for you? If so, how? Yes so much. When I originally was asked to write this, I had been doing a project online. So I found this project where you say thank you to someone. You write a card for every single day for a year to someone in your life. And I knew I was not going to be able to do that because I'm not able to like write it and mail it and send it. It would like, I'd end up disappointing myself. So I made the decision to do it on social media. In the beginning, my posts were like, thank you for being an awesome friend or an awesome uncle or whatever. Then one day, one of my boys came home. He had enough courage to go out on the street. He's a little different from my other kids, my middle son, and he never plays with the kids on the street. And he had the courage to go out and play with the kids on the street. And he came home very quickly, completely a mess, crying. I said, what happened? And he said, he wears thick glasses. He's the one who's legally blind. And he said, they called me a nerd and made fun of me. My heart broke. And that day, I had not written my thank you. And so I wrote my thank you to the kid on the street that made fun of my kid. We had this really hard talk in our house about how this is what happens in life. There are people in life that are like this. And we don't want to be like this. And while we can't help when someone does this to us, we have a choice when someone is doing it to someone else to say nothing or to speak up. And what's so interesting about this idea you know, because you read my memoir, if you go all the way back to my ancestors, it's the same thing in Nazi Germany and the idea of, do you want to be someone who speaks up or do you want to be someone who says nothing? And so from that post, I got all these comments and people were really digging my thank yous when they were more deep and painful. Then a year later, I finished my thank yous and everyone was like, you can't stop writing. So I did a a year of lessons in challenges. And about a few months in, I got a message on Facebook from an old, old friend who said, I'm a publisher. Have you ever considered turning this into a book? She didn't want it the way it was written. She wanted me to dig. And she said that there are stories under my thank yous and she wanted to know what they were. Initially, I put together like a cute little like holiday book, like here's my thank yous and here's my lessons. And she's like, nope, there's more here. She gave me a six-week deadline and she said, this is what I want. This is what it needs to look like. And you need to get it done in six weeks. I just camped in. When I wasn't working, I wasn't taking care of my kids. I just wrote. 
And so it was painful and scary. And, you know, once you start digging into your family's past, you are start unearthing. Absolutely. Most people, as part of a a therapeutic process, will write, but they burn it, you know, or they throw it away. But you published them. (laughs) I published them, right? Yeah, yeah. I love the idea of actually directing them to people who are still alive. Mm-hmm. Have you had comments or feedback from people who, who that letter was intended for? Yes. And this is something I want everyone to know. I've had so many people tell me like how meaningful it was for them to read and how vulnerable and how they connected. And while, like you said, while our stories were not the same, the feelings were the same, the challenges of hating yourself and wanting something more and not knowing how to do it. And what I tell every single person that takes the time in their life to reach out to me and tell me something that was effective to them. As I say to them, I want you to know that not only did your message brighten my day, but you didn't have to tell me that. You could have just read the book and had a moment and then moved on. But because you stopped and you took two minutes to send me a message on social media or in an email that my book meant something to you, it caused a ripple effect of kindness. And then I felt highly and happy on the inside and like I was being impactful. And then I was kind to my kids and I was kind to someone at work because of your message. And I told them, please don't ever stop letting people know when somebody's doing something good. Because all we ever do is talk about when someone does something bad. And you just never know how someone's message is going to affect them in a way that is beyond our comprehension. There's a level of, of self-awareness that comes through in your book and also just talking to you, right? So has that come from being in those dark places and having therapy around that? Or do you think it's those dark places that have made you be one of these introspective people that has the ability to reflect and then learn from those lessons? Because some people don't learn. Some people come hard. They do all kinds of things that isn't necessarily positive for their human growth. Or they get stuck in the story and want to stay in that and use that as an excuse. First of all, thank you for that compliment. I think that for me, you know, I'm 21 years sober in in a recovery program and my recovery requires me to be brutally honest, requires me to take inventory, to meditate, to look at my stuff, to get rid of things that are blocking me. And I've always been a seeker. I've always wanted a connection. I definitely did when I was out there using, looking for some way to connect. I didn't know how to do it. I did it obviously destructively, but I want to be a student of life. Right now, I just finished a huge, beautiful project that I'm doing. I just like, I want to constantly be digging. And I think once you've seen that, it's like when you see that little small 15 minute period, like the gloaming hour at the, the daytime when you're like, the universe is showing off. Look at those colors. Like no one can do that. You know what <laughs> I mean? When you see that, but not everyone's willing to look, but you are. I mean, that's why you're doing this work because mm. you find that to be beautiful. And Absolutely. so do I. Absolutely. That's magic. Mm-hmm. What else really is there? Because at the end of the day, you know, I coach different people, mostly co-parents and some people that want just help just living like more awake. One of my clients, when we're talking, I say to him, February 1st, you're done. Like there's no more life. The someone, God, universe, whatever, whispers in your ear and says, hey, February 1st is your last day on earth. Don't tell anybody. You can't stop working because you still need to make a living. How would you live differently? And we both sit back and kind of think about it. And we're like, how would I do today differently? And it really does change everything. I don't know why I don't do that on a more regular basis. Because how do I know I'm not? There is a, a Buddhist saying, you know, teachings around this our teacher would always say 
just be thankful for the end of the day because you just don't know whether you're going to wake up the next day. I have two quotes in the front of my book. And the second quote is, the trouble is you think you have time from Buddha. And I have it on my mantle. I love words. And I, I think that words are really meaningful because I need reminders. I forget that every single thing since January 27th, 1999 is bonus. I forget that all the things I'm worried about and the things I need to do and work on, that's just bonus stuff. I told God in the universe, I'm done at 19 years old. And I pieced out, turned in my keys, I was out. And so mm. ever, everything since then is bonus, but I forget because I'm human. And I think about all the you know money and all this stuff you need to worry mm. about. And I forget that it doesn't even matter. Yes, but I guess from the day-to-day stuff, you need to keep ticking over, right? You for have your, to, for your right. family, you know, you've got a family, you've got to it's find a way to provide my responsibility, right? So it's hard to find that balance between like that idea of that voice on your shoulder that's like the trouble is you think you have time and we need to be in the moment and live. And so you need to like find that balance, which I think we're all trying to figure out. Yeah, I think it's always going to be a work in progress. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I don't, look, I don't think I'd, I've met someone that says, yes, you know, I've, I've had this balanced life and it's been like this for forever. I don't know if it's happening for you, but I'm really embracing the mess. My kids see it more than anybody. I'm doing the best I can. It is normal for me to constantly be like, where's my phone? Where's my keys? Even though when I say it out loud, a logical person will be like, just put it in this place. But my life is not logical. Like it's nonstop, right? Like all of ours. And so we're just all doing the best we can. Right at this point of our conversation, Carly and I start to digress. So what I've done is cut back a little bit of the conversation. We get back on track with Carly wanting to ask me a question. And this is what it was. Was there a part of my story that made you stop and think in a different way? Or was there a part that touched you more than another part? I never get to ask readers those kind of questions. I think at some stage, it was the enormity of what you go through on a daily basis that I just sat and just went, wow, this is a lot to take in, especially when you got to, you know, just talking about your family life. And I was just sitting there thinking, how are you doing this? You know, like even with your new husband and the fact that you're living separately, I mean, that also has its impact. It really reminded me of we have what's called FIFO in Australia, so fly-in, fly-out jobs, people away from their families for three to six weeks at a time, and they're doing this on a very regular basis. So it kind of reminded me of that. We see each other every other weekend, about 12 or 13 days apart is how often we see each other. It is going to be for at least another 10 years. There's so many things about it that are so complicated and that work out. He's my favorite human on earth. He's my best friend and soulmate. I sometimes curse the universe that he was sent to me because it's hard. Who wants a partner that lives in another state? But what it's also taught me is how capable I am and how, once again, the reminder of I can do a lot by myself. And when I can't do it, I get to ask other people for help, which I never used to do. And when we will get to be together again, it's going to be at a totally different place in our life. And when we are together on the weekends, when we get to see each other, we appreciate each other in such a different way than I think most married people would because we're excited to see each other's bodies. We're excited to just be together and like watch a stupid show together. He is my person. He inspires me. Our story, as you know, is crazy pants. Mm -hmm. He also is my perfect match. 
he pushes me in a way that no one has ever dared to. And I think I do the same thing for him. So when you have someone like that and they don't live in that same state with you, it's kind of hard to like, oh, sorry, that's not going to work. Like, he's my soulmate. We would not want to live together right now because our kids being together would be like the worst Brady Bunch ever. I'm in the divorce world now, you know, for a living. 50% of marriages in America end in divorce anyways. I lived in the same house with my first husband in the same bed, and it was the loneliest place I've ever been. So what I've found along this path, especially professionally, is it's not about the logistics. It's about what are you to each other? What are you putting into this marriage? I mean, marriage is the only, I don't know if you can relate to this, but when I was in high school and the teacher would announce that there was a school project, like a class project, that you had to work with like a team of three other people, I would inwardly groan. Did you guys ever get those? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, all the time. Can you yeah. understand why I was inwardly groaning? Well, I have my take on it and that is- What's I mean, your I'm, take? My take is uh, I prefer to work alone. It's difficult to work with others reliability essentially. Yes. Right. So I was a really great student and I was like, oh no, they're not going to pull their weight. I'm going to have to do this all right. So that concept really for me translates to marriage. And the thing is marriage is the only school project that you can't do on your own for the whole team and still get an A. It doesn't work if you do it all and the other person doesn't like it can in a school project, you can do all the work, turn it in and everybody gets credit marriage, you both have to put in the work and you can't make somebody else want to put in the work, which is really hard because no matter how much you want it, even if one person in the marriage doesn't want a divorce, it doesn't matter because if one does, it doesn't work. It's a lot of trust you've got there, right? When you really think about it, who thinks about it? You just think in your twenties, we're supposed to get married and have kids and all this stuff, but you don't think like, I'm going to pair myself with someone and I hope this is the right person and that we're going to be able to do all this stuff together and handle a child that has got all these scary things and face the world. You don't know what questions to ask. I certainly did not know. Well, you do now. I do now. <laughs> As a divorce coach, how has divorce changed you and in what way? People often ask me, has the book been your biggest challenge and the biggest transformative process? And I'm like, nope, the divorce. The divorce, and you saw all I've gone through, the divorce was the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole life because I didn't have to do it. I could have stayed. There was no infidelity. There was no physical beating. But the loneliness I felt, I felt like an orchid that was growing in a glass vase that was given just enough air to breathe, but it was so, so lonely. And I remember thinking, I could make myself stay because I can pretty much do anything. We all, you know, like we all can, you get what you tolerate, right? You can figure it out. I didn't want to lose my kids. I didn't want to not be with them. I was so in love with being with my kids. And whenever I would make the decision to just stay, I felt a part of me was dying. And I remember thinking, what if my oldest son came to me in his 30s and I had stayed with his dad and he sat me down and he said, mom, I don't know what to do. I've done all these things. We've gone to counseling. I do this no matter what I do. I just feel like this. And I didn't want to have to look away from him and not look him in the eyes and be like, you just have to suck it up. I didn't want to tell him something that I couldn't do myself. When I first wrote my first article for HuffPost about that called My Light Went Out, I cannot even tell you that one lit a fire across the world. Like it was translated into different languages. And it was like all these men, it was mostly men, were yelling at me all over the internet about really? how I was a marriage record and I was selfish and self-centered and how could you do this? And this is the sanctity of marriage. And, you know, what I've learned along the way is nobody knows about anyone's actual relationship except for those two people. So keep your mouth shut. And how interesting is it that 
people want people, mostly they want women to just stay. Even if you're not happy, even if you're not getting love, this is my whole life. I'm just supposed to be alone in a place where you're comfortable seeing me. Like it's kind of crazy pants. Did you get responses from women? I got a lot of women that were messaging me that were like, thank you. What I found out that is never talked about is there's a form of abuse that was happening in my marriage that no one talks about and it's called neglect. It is when one partner doesn't think that it matters or what the other person is saying is like really valid or, oh, you're just being dramatic or that once you're married, you don't have to do something. You don't have to date that person. You don't have to make them feel special and that it's, oh, it's like a done deal. When I would come to my husband at the time and say, I, I'm not okay. And he'd be like, I am okay. We have since briefly talked about it. And I can tell you that the regret that he had, at least when we separated, was very, very clear. He said to me, I didn't know you were serious. What I learned about myself is that I want to be in a relationship with someone who can hear me when I speak. That's a really important partnership, you know. Absolutely. I'm just going to shift gears here now. You are a divorce coach with all the skills and lived experience. What do you notice that you give to your clients the most? Is it confidence? Is it faith, hope, tools, strength? All those. But I think the most important thing that I can give any of them is you get to choose how you want your life to look. It's that powerful. Not everybody that comes to me with divorce has chosen the divorce. Someone else might have made that choice for them. And regardless of how people get to that place in their life, it's like, now what, right? Like, now what? Now what am I supposed to do? And what I always tell them is you get to decide what you want the rest of your life to look like. You basically just got like a redo, like restart. Now what? What's the rest of your life going to look like? And I make them do this one assignment that's really uncomfortable in my boot camp. I only coach people who have children because my whole goal is about focusing on how co-parenting and how you need to change your behavior so your kids don't have to suffer. And I make them write a letter to themselves from their children as if they were adults. Regardless of how many children they have, they have to write that many letters from each child. The letter is in the child's voice as if they were like in their 30s. And it's to them if they don't change any of their behavior, they keep talking about the other parent, they keep being negative and stuck and putting them in the middle and, and, you know, not doing things or doing them out of spite. And that child writes the letter as an adult saying like what that impact was growing up in that house and how it's messed them up basically. Cause that's, I've read those real letters. Then we talk about that and how awful that felt. And then I say, now your assignment is to write a letter from them, same child, same time, but as if you're doing all the work and you're going to take the high road and you're going to suck it up and you're going to show up at the game and you're going to, buy socks with their faces on it for Father's Day and you're going to do all those things and you're never going to put your stuff on them, what's that going to look like? And they read that letter to me and I say, which letter do you want to receive? You get to choose one. You are the only person who's powerful enough to choose that. So I think the thing that I offer them the most in all of my coaching is you get to decide. There is no victim here. You get to decide what kind of life you want to have. Is that a life-changing moment for some people at that point? I can just see it. Yeah, because what I do with them when they do my boot camp is the first two sessions, we're going over their resentments and fears and basically helping them get rid of all their junk. Let's get rid of it because they want to talk about the story all the time. Let me tell you about what he did or she did. And I'm like, okay, let's get it at one time. Then I say, we're done. It's over. We're done. This is no longer serving you. It's like those jeans that no longer fit. Let's get them out of the closet and donate them. They don't fit you anymore. Right. And once we get through that, then I give them that assignment and I ask them, like, what do you want for your life? Now you get to start and you get to decide. And so, yes, it is empowering because they realize that 
nobody even cares about their stories anymore. They want to decide about what kind of life they want to live here on out. Have you decided not to work with someone anymore because they were stuck in their story and they didn't want to let it go? Yeah. So my coaching is called In Your Corner Coach because I think of myself like in the boxing ring. While I can't do the work, it's their work. It's hard work. And, you know, I'm I'm an athlete at heart and I've never boxed because my face would be all messed up because I wouldn't be good at it. But I love the idea of athletes and how hard you have to work in order to be good at what you do and how you have to take the punches and you have to sweat and there's blood and all of that stuff. So I say to them, I have two rules when I coach clients and they're non-negotiable. And if they're not willing to follow them, I will not work with them. I tell mm-hmm. them this is not for everybody. If someone comes to me and their whole goal is that they want to get their ex back and do this and do that, I I tell them this is not the right fit because I'm only willing to work with people that are willing to put their stuff aside, not only for the kids, but for themselves, because they're just going to be miserable. Adult children of divorce say this. The second I found out I was going to get married, my first thought after the excitement was, crap, how am I going to get my parents in the same space together? Or when they have a baby, that's their first thought. How are we going to do the baby naming or whatever? That only happens when the parents are selfish. And I am not willing to do that. I refuse to live a life like that. You're not going to be married to the person anymore. You can put on a face and smile and behave and shut up, just like you do at work when you don't want to be with someone, you know? Because you've got the bigger picture in place. Yeah. I guess some people are going to be not wanting to go there because it's too painful. It's just better to stay stuck in the story. It takes someone with a lot of courage and maturity to actually want to move through their shit, basically. Or maybe their story and their victim crap is serving them. Maybe they like being bitter and angry, right? Yeah, sure. Until it doesn't anymore and then right. the light bulb moment will happen. Or it won't. They'll look at their life and like, I can't believe I wasted all that time. I mean, my husband's adult trial of divorce, his parents got divorced when he was an adult and they've been divorced for like 10 years. They were married for 39. They won't be in the same room. They won't be at, a, at their grandchild's birthday party because one is there. That's life you're missing. Nothing's going to happen. It's just anger. It's interesting having you in that mix now that they know what you do and yet they're choosing not to get help. My grandmother, the one who was a Holocaust survivor, the only one that's living, when I told her I was going through my divorce, she was so gracious. She survived the Holocaust and she told me the worst thing that she's ever gone through was not the Holocaust. It was her parents' marriage and divorce. Wow. And yeah. And she said they were so hateful and mean to each other horrible. They didn't divorce until she was an adult because they couldn't because they were in the middle of the Holocaust. As an adult, my grandmother was a mother and had a life. She would go to a holiday dinner and would look at her watch because she needed to go to the other parent's house. And the parent's house that she was sitting at would make a big scene about how, oh, you're going to go to see him and make her feel horrible. She said that she never wanted me to do that to my kids. And that, that it was so painful, even as an adult, for parents to treat their adult child like that. And I just don't want to do that. Yeah, and look at that. That story stayed with you. That's pretty powerful. Powerful for her because she carried it her whole life. Right. I mean, she's in her 80s, and that's what she tells me is the most painful thing she's ever been through. That's remarkable. You talk about the North Star, Mm. right? It's an important metaphor in your life. Explain to the listener what it means for you because it really does connect with all that we've spoken about. It really does. Thank you so much for bringing that up. When I knew that the divorce was happening, I knew I did not want to have the divorce we were just talking about. I refused to go the path of what everyone was telling me was going to happen. That it was me miserable. I was going to be lonely and bitter and my kids are going to be miserable and it was going to be horrible. 
And I knew about this guy that I was friends with on Facebook named Scott. I'd only heard of him, but never met him. And we were in the same circle. I reached out to him one night and I said, can I connect with you? I think I'm supposed to talk to you. And he's like, sure, okay. And we've since talked about it. And he reached out to one of our mutual friends and was like, is she going to kill me? And found (laughs) out that like, I'm not a serial killer. I heard about him because I knew that he was like the happy divorced guy. And his divorce, he did not want initially, but it ended up being what needed to happen. And he made the decision that he refused to go down the path that we were just talking about. He told me about this concept that night called the North Star. He said that the North Star is what sailors use when they're lost in the dark and they can't find their way home. He said that my children would need to be my North Star and that when I didn't know what to do, I needed to stop and look to them and think what is in the best interest of them. And then that would help me find my way home. That is actually the concept that we ended up telling them about our divorce. My husband has his one and only tattoo, North Star on his arm. And I've got many, many. We got it together after we got our divorce. And we've done, I would say, like an A minus job of that in our marriage, divorce, of following that. I, I do. It's my life. And I think it's really important to figure out what your North Star is. What matters more than anything in the world? And when you know what that is, then you can make your decisions based on that. Yeah, that's that's a, a powerful way to look at it, I think. And thank you for clarifying that. Hopefully that'll assist people who may be going through something similar. Yeah, and I talk about it a lot because I have a podcast called In Your Corner Coach um, Divorced. And we talk about that if you focus on what's best for them, you'll always know what to do. And that's perfect. You talk a lot about gratitude. It's really clear as we speak. Has that gotten you through tough times or has your gratitude come about as a result of those tough times? I would say both. My friend, Scott, that I just mentioned, we do a gratitude practice every night. We send each other five things we're grateful for. We started it four years ago. and We made the decision we're going to do it until one of us is no longer here. When I think about that, it makes me cry because he's 10 years older than me. And I hope that it's going to be a long time. But when one of us is no longer here that first night, we're going to want to send that gratitude lesson. It's going to really be painful. My mother always told me that it's about an attitude of gratitude. You have to act like someone who's great, that gratitude is an action word. And that if you're grateful, what does it look like? Probably the thing that's changed my life more than anything is perspective. I have these two words that have changed my life that I think were in my memoir. They're called get to. And that idea is anytime I hear my own words saying, I have to go do this, I need to go do this, I stop and I say, no, I get to. So I have to do my laundry. There's so much laundry. And I stop and I say, no, I get to do my laundry. I have a house to do laundry in. I have laundry machines. I have children who are alive that I get to clean their laundry. And I have clothes and we can afford to buy them. And I think about Levi and I think how when we didn't think we were going to get to keep him anymore around in this world, that the pain I would feel every single day when I did laundry and wish there was more would be unbearable. So when I see socks on the floor, I think about the kids from Newton, Connecticut here that were massacred in a mass shooting. And I think how their parents would do anything on earth to have balled up socks on the floor. And those little shifts in how we look at life for me, that's gratitude. It's about looking at the same life we have and seeing it completely differently. Absolutely. And in psychological terms, I think it's called reframing, perspective reframing, which then, then leads to gratitude. So whatever works for you, I think what you've described, a very powerful, powerful, ordinary moment in someone's day. Yes. Because that's what it is. It's very ordinary. But to understand the ordinary in the way that you've described in case of potential loss, is very powerful. So thank you for doing that. 
My um, son, my middle son, his best friend lives three doors away and he has a horrible form of cancer, like horrible. And his parents right now are in a hospital with him fighting. And whenever I hear people complaining on social media about virtual school, it's boring. It's annoying. It sucks. There's so many things that are boring, annoying that suck. But I know for a fact that my friend Emily, his mother and his father, Christian, would do anything on earth if their only problem was that their kids were bored in virtual school. And stories are important, but I'm not going to see the stories around me if I'm stuck in myself. So that's why we have to all do the work to get rid of our junk so we can see what else is going on in the world around us. Absolutely. There's so much in what we've spoken about today and there's lots of courage in there. Can you define for me what courage is for you? I love that question. I can tell you that I sat next to Levi's bed when he told me he was recently, I'm afraid to die because he's got some scary medical stuff. And when he gets sick, his thoughts now he's 11 go to, I don't want to die. And I tell him that in order to be a courageous person, because everyone talks about, oh, you're so courageous. In order to be considered courageous, you have to at first be afraid. You cannot be a courageous person if you don't start with fear, because if you weren't afraid of something, that's not courageous to do it, right? And I tell him that, and this is what I believe about courage, that anyone that is courageous is someone that's just walking through their fear and doing it anyway. We are all afraid and none of us knows anything, but that I'm going to sit next to him and hold his hand no matter what. So for me, courage is being afraid and doing it anyways. Absolutely. And in that example that you just gave, I can imagine that both of you are walking through that hall of fear. You know, you're holding each other because you don't know the outcome. I've lied to him one time in my life. And it was when he asked me a question about if he was going to die or not. And I told him, no way. You're going to be an old, old man. And I don't lie to my kids because I want them to be able to trust me. But there there was a space and a time where he needed that lie. And I can imagine anyone who's listening who has someone in their life that's, you know, if, especially if it's a child going through some scary stuff, there is strength and beauty that comes from that that nobody can even fathom. It's hard to know whether what you just said there is what's going to carry him through until right. he's an old man. Right. Only time will tell with that one. You described Scott as being a soul brother and who introduced you to the concept of the North Star, you said earlier. You said that you find him to be someone who's really courageous. How has he impacted and influenced you? Levi is my karma baby and he's my biggest teacher. Scott is one of the people in my life who saved my life when I needed it the most. He taught me about the concept besides North Star, which has been beautiful. He taught me about the concept permission to be human. And On the outside, when you look at him, he seems like someone who's just got it all, but he's got it all, air quotes, because he works his ass off. And he shared with me that when he was younger, he was made fun of a lot and he had a really, really hard time. And he's gone through some emotionally painful things too, but he is someone who sucks like the juices and energy out of life. Like, do I dare to eat a peach? He is the kind of person that I want to be around because he excites me about how he sees the world. And when he taught me about permission to be human, he said that we're allowed to give ourselves permission when we're having a hard time to just have the hard time. Because I always want to like make it better and like, you know, suck it up. You should be okay. And sometimes I just need to have a hard time. Because if I can't give that to myself, then I'm not going to give it to you if you need it. 
One of my jobs, I think, in the universe, besides spreading light, is giving other people permission to be human, which is why I think I was able to be as vulnerable as I was in my memoir. I don't care what anyone else thinks about me anyways. Why not show them how I really feel and let them know so they don't feel so alone? And that's the kind of messages I get. Definitely your book is that, you know, it's not a gloss over it. It's heart-wrenching at times. It's real. It's raw. I highly recommend if that's something that you want to get stuck into, please buy Seconds and Inches. It's fantastic. Last question for you. Are you courageous? First of all, I don't want to say goodbye to you because I actually think we're going to be soul friends. But second (laughs) of all, yeah, absolutely. I think that I've found within myself along this path that I'm one of my favorite people in the world. I used to hate myself. Looking back at the things I've walked through, absolutely. Do I think I'm as courageous as my ancestors were? I don't think so. I don't know that I would be able to make the choices that they had to make. I pray I never have to be in the positions that they were. But I imagine people who've never been in my position feel the exact same way. So it's hard to know. I think I am. I also think that there's people that are way more. Kylie, thank you so much for being here, talking with me. I'm just, I am in awe of you. I'm excited for your author series to come out. Anyone that you're interviewing, I want to read their stuff. I also learned along the way how important it is to lift each other up because it really, really makes a difference. Thank you so much for this time. Oh, look, thank you so much for saying yes. It's been fantastic. I wouldn't say anything else to you. Bless you. Bless you. There are some people you could sit down and spend hours with. Carly is one of those people for me, a kindred spirit. It's pretty clear Carly has worked a lot on herself and continues to do so in order to become the best person she wants to be. That takes stamina, determination and courage, especially for someone who once upon a time was ready to give up. To find out how you can access Carly's book, Seconds and Inches, jump onto her podcast in your corner, Divorce Coach, or make contact with her, jump onto courageunraveled.com forward slash podcasts and you will see Carly's details in the show notes under episode 19, series four. Just before I go, another reminder that if you like what you hear, leave a five-star review on Google or my Facebook page, Joyful Living with Sana Turnock. Take a snapshot of it and email it through to me at hello at courageunraveled.com by April 30th, 2021 to be in the running. To be in the running for what you say, for one of my courage journals that I'm giving away. Stay courageous. Until next time, I'm Sana Turnock, your Courage Unraveled host.